We're going to start this fall service before we get into another sermon series, casting a little vision for how we think and how we, we behave at New Life, what kind of drives us. And last week was a part of that as we closed out the series, but this week, again, we're going to be talking about a Samaritan that's the most famous Samaritan in all of, of Scripture. Do you know what the person is called? We don't know their, their name specifically. They are what? The Good Samaritan. So we've been talking about this person in the past. Uh, we will always talk about this person because this person fits into the culture of new life. Uh, but I want to start with a question that is posed by an attorney in the New Testament as we dig into the story of the Good Samaritan. We're going to be in the book of Luke. You can get yourselves there on your phones on your apps, on the screens, with your actual, does anyone actually have a real Bible that they bring to church? Right? It's not just for show, you actually read it, hold it up. Right? You actually read this thing, it's not, if I went by and picked it up, it's not stiff, it's not brand new, it's not just for show. You can actually read your real Bible in church, and we would encourage you to do so. Uh, but there's a question that's posed in the narrative of the Good Samaritan before we ever get to the story of the Good Samaritan, it's by a lawyer He's talking to Jesus. His heart is messed up. And the question that's posed is the most important question that you will ever ask. It's the most important question that I will ever ask. In fact, if I was as a pastor now uh, 17 years into being a part of New Life to define two questions that will change the entire trajectory of your life, this one would be first, and the the only thing even close to it would be this other question, and which is, if you're single, who you will marry. Who you will marry will change the entire trajectory of your life because marriage is a covenant, it's forever relationship. But then the only more important question than that, which actually feeds into the who you will marry question, is this. How do I, maybe you even want to write it down if you, if you don't know the answer to this question, stay with us at New Life. It'll be answered for you. How do I receive eternal life? How do I receive eternal life? Luke 10.25, a lawyer stood up. The Bible says a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. That's Jesus. He's testing Jesus, or at least he thinks he is. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And it's interesting that he would stand up. It almost sounds odd that you would stand up. They're all sitting. You'd stand up to ask this question. But really, historically and culturally, to stand up to speak to someone uh, was a great sign of honor and respect. And the irony of him doing that is that he is showing Jesus honor and respect only to be condescending, only to put him to the test. And so he is the very definition, this lawyer, I know this is shocking that a lawyer would have this quality, but it's the very definition of a hypocrite. That he in one hand would show the group, it's, it's, it's this cultural thing going on, he'd show the group, uh, you know, I'm going to show Jesus honor and respect, this Galilean peasant, but with my actions... I'm going to show that, but with my heart, I'm going to put him, the Bible says, to the test. And so a hypocrite is defined when your heart is disconnected from your actions, and that's the guy in this storyline. And he says to him, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, this guy knows the law. He's what? He's a lawyer. He said, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And I want you to just underline something in your mind as we read that. 
that the key to everything, what's the resounding word in the phrase? This goes back to the Old Testament. This is the greatest commandment. It's the word all, that it's not some, and we'll get to that in the closer. That to love God is not something you do with an affection that's half-hearted. It's something you do with all of your heart. You obey with all of your heart. You love with all of your heart. And then the second thing is where we're going to camp today. With all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind. And here's the big piece. And you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. How do I inherit eternal life? You're going to love God. You're going to love people. Verse 29. This is where it gets dangerous. This is where it looks like us. Verse 29. But he desiring to justify himself. That's dangerous. That's what we do in our pride. But he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? This could be a legitimate question. This could be a question where he's trying to, we don't really know exactly why he's asking that, but he's asking the question. He probably thinks he knows the answer, and Jesus is going to blow that answer out of the water. And so the lawyer asked Jesus a question concerning the Old Testament law, which is very ironic because Jesus, by nature or by virtue, is a Galilean peasant, and this guy's a lawyer, an expert. He's an expert of the law, and he's asking Jesus, which just shows you the type of authority that Jesus walked in on earth. And Jesus lays out for him, you gotta love God, you gotta love your neighbor, and this guy is not responding with the simplicity of the, of the answer giving. He, he has to go further with it. In his pride, he's, he's telling himself it can't really be that easy. Explain further. He's, uh, he's desiring to justify himself, and he's doing something that's very religious. This is what this guy wants. How do you know if you're religious? He wants a checklist. Religious people always want a checklist. Tell me exactly what to do so I can check that box and I can move on. Tell me who my neighbor is so I can know I am loving that person and following all the good rules that I'm supposed to follow. And here's what pride always does. Pride always attempts to justify behavior. It never walks in the simplicity of the answer given. And so he wants these rules. He says, how do I receive eternal life? How do I know that I've made the cut? The lawyer's concerned with good behavior, but Jesus is concerned with the condition of his heart. And so he lays it out for him. Jesus replies. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and who beat him and who departed him, leaving him half dead. So we're going to unpack this story. We're getting into the cultural significance, the historical significance. And uh, if you've never heard it before, here you go. This road was long. Is anyone not from Aberdeen? Anyone from somewhere crazy like California? All right. So you're the Samaritans in the story. That's, that's where I'm from too. Uh, we are a different breed, aren't we? There's two of you. Anyone, anyone from not South Dakota? Raise your hand. My wife's not here. She hates when I say raise your hand. Anyone from like somewhere a little more dangerous than Aberdeen? Vegas. Okay. Don't ever talk to that person again. You, you have to understand this, this storyline within the context of when it's written and what's going on. And so uh, historically, Jericho to Jerusalem, or Jerusalem to Jericho, it's about a 17-mile journey. There's no cars, so they're, they're traveling by foot. If they had some significance, they would travel by animal. But a lot of people just walked it in sandals. 
It literally went down about 3,000 feet. So get a mental picture of what this would have looked like because I don't have a visual picture for you. There was a hill. It's 17 miles long. If you are walking on this journey, you can see what's going on ahead of you, and that's going to be significant in just a second. And so you see what's taking place, and it's known to be a shady road. Bad stuff happens. This is why Jesus speaks to his culture. He knows that the people around the circle listening to the lawyer, listening to him, they would have known about this road. They would have known that things went down. And if you're from Vegas, you know that, right? Who's from Vegas? Right? You know there's just certain places that you don't go if you want to live a healthy life and not be injured. I grew up in this place, Bakersfield. I'm going to be there in a few weeks. There was this place, Cottonwood in Bakersfield. My mom always told me, and I never disobeyed, even though I was a rebellious kid. I never went there. Like, that was just where you, if you want to live, you don't go there. There's these spaces. And I think it's funny, when I moved to Aberdeen over 20 years ago, and I was this young man, I got married, and I thought I heard of bad parts of town. And then I went there, and I'm like, that's not bad. That's not that bad. I mean, that what, it's just people maybe a little less than you in your mind? It's not bad. You're not going to die. You just might meet people that look a little different. It's not dangerous. This was dangerous. And so they're on this road. And, and look at what Jesus does. This, this is super interesting. As he starts unpacking this narrative, he says, who is my neighbor? When you want to identify with certain people groups, you tend to look at their clothing, and you tend to look at their dialect. You tend to look at what type of job they have. You look at who their family is who they're married to. What's the number one question we always ask people when we first meet them? Specifically men, because men are very uh, superficial in some ways, right? And so what do, we, what do we ask? If I don't know you, what do I say to you? I say, what do you do? And because that then creates your identity, and because I'm a man, I don't have to have real conversation. I'm intimidated by that. I don't want to get too personal. I just want to talk about whether or not, you know, you're a welder or an electrician or a doctor. And we'll just leave it at that because we're guys. We'll talk about football, but we're not going to really get into it. When I want to know who you are, I want to identify with the way that you look, the people that you associate with, the clothes that you wear, the job that you have, the family that you possess. And so Jesus, knowing how this works in a religious culture, throws a narrative at this guy where none of that information is possible. He's saying, there's a man that came down from Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed him, leaving him half dead. And so here's what that's so interesting about that. This guy was naked and unconscious, so he'd have no way of knowing if he was his neighbor. There was, there was no loophole. He just sees a, a human being with, with a heartbeat that's quickly fading because he'd been beaten. And this is going to be his neighbor who has no status. And so now person number one comes into the narrative, verse 31. And now by chance a priest was going down that road. And when he saw he had passed by the other side. And so he looks, he has a knee-jerk reaction. And he makes a quick decision. He, you know, he, it's, a, it's a hill, it's a 17-mile hill, right? And so he's looking at him coming down this hill. He's probably thinking, what do I do? I'm a priest. Are other people going to notice this? I know the law. I follow the rules. And then he gets to the guy. I imagine at this point in the narrative, his heart's pounding, I would think. Maybe it's not. But he decides to just walk by and think about what that would have felt like. Walk by this man who's half-beaten, unconscious, undressed, 
on the side of the road. This guy's a pastor. The priest would have come back. Here's the backstory. The priest would have been coming back from a two-week stint at the temple. That's why he was in Jerusalem. And what's going on with him is very practical. For him to get involved in this half-beaten, naked man's life would have been considered ritually unclean. There were these things called rites of purification in the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And if he gets close to this naked man, he'll have to again head back to Jerusalem and begin the rites of purification. It was a long process. It was messy. And so he's coming down the hill. He's going to have to go back up the hill, and it's a long process. The process, in fact, would have taken seven days. And within those seven days, he would have had to stand along the eastern gate with other sinners until a priest like him came along and purified him. And so he would have had shame and doubt. He would have been ostracized. He would have been out of his, uh, a bunch of money. He would have been able to, unf- to fulfill his priestly duties for a period of time. And so he makes this calculated decision. If I engage in this person who's supposedly my neighbor, my life is going to get much worse very fast. And so I want you to write this down because this this is the culture of our church that we've created over the last 17 years. There's a way to deal with this naked person on the side of the road. The priest responds with religious pride. The priest responds with religious pride. You can put that in your bulletin. And what he's probably thinking is he is in no way going to stand by a gate with a bunch of people that are less than him and then be seen in public with a naked man. And it is, it is so easy, it is so easy to look at this story. How many of you know this story? Right? You know it. You're, you're like, I'm not a Christian, I've heard of it. The Good Samaritan is something that transcends culture in America. We all know this story. But he responds with this thing that is in his heart called religious pride. And we look at this and we go, I I would never do that. I would never walk. I mean, you know, I would never like be at the Brown County Fair a few weeks ago and then I'm going to my car. I see a drunk, you know, fake cowboy passed out by his truck and I just walk by. Remember that story? I got a lot of feedback from that. You're like, man, there are a lot of people. There are fake cowboys in town. I thought, I think I'm onto something. I'm going to keep going with that shtick. But... But think about it, you know, you got this guy, you're at the Brown County Fair, he's a cowboy, he's drunk, he's by his big truck with big tires, and, and you're going, I would never just walk by him in his vomited state, and, and, and I'm, just, I'm just asking you this question, would you though? Is there enough evidence in your life to say that you don't look like the priest in this story? Because really at the heart of this guy's story is just religious pride. How do I know if I have religious pride? Well, you're in luck. We like to dissect these things at New Life. Here's, here's some indicators. If you are religious and you are prideful, here are some things that exist in your heart or in your lifestyle. You have little to no contact with the outside world. You have a bubble. It's Christianese. And you don't operate far outside of that bubble. In fact, most of your fighting and quarreling comes within the circle of Christians and you tend to worry more about being better than, in the faith than those people that are around you in the seats next to you at New Life than having a heart for that person that's naked and beaten on the side of the road. You lack compassion and you love rules. You tend to have a double standard for those rules, and that double standard is the way that you live your own life in hypocrisy, and you tend to give a caveat for even that immediate circle of your family. 
You love knowing more than other people. You can't stand building relationships with people that you don't deem worthy of your religious presence. It seems harsh, but think about it through that lens. How many people am I engaged in that don't look like me and talk like me? This guy has religious pride in his heart, and there's no way, there's no way he is going to make that sacrifice socially. So now, now character number two comes to the equation. The Bible says in verse 32, So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And so he has the vantage point of seeing his boss. A Levite is Levite's like a JV priest that's never going to make varsity. He's that disgruntled person that knows that this is his place. He's never going to go further. And so he's a JV priest for all practical purposes. And so he never is going to get bumped to varsity. He's the assistant to the regional manager. He's living this lifestyle where he's not riding in any type of animal. He's definitely walking. He's a ways behind the priest because religion loves to make distinguishing marks and status. The priest is the big deal. The priest has the capital. The priest has the greatest to lose if he's seen in a lesser light. And now this Levite who's behind him is following by example, sees the same man, he sees what his boss in essence does, and he gets to this point in the journey, and he makes the same decision because he is watching through observation of lifestyle and character, and he walks around this man who's had this plight on him. The Levite walks by. He would have seen this from three or four miles away on this hill. He's probably anxious. He knows what's right. And so the Levite does something that we also do. He doesn't respond out of religious pride. He responds out of religious fear. And you can, you can write that down as well. That's going to be in your, in your bulletin. He responds with this fearful state in his heart. He knows that he's supposed to love God. He's supposed to love people. But there's no way he is going to do something that the priest wouldn't even do. And he would have had to walk to the same ritual cleaning. He knows it. But he has now been shown by example what it looks like to be a hypocrite. And so he responds with fear. He responds with a list of do's and do nots. And he loves this place of here's the rules that I follow. And this guy doesn't fit in my paradigm for rules that I need to follow. Some of you have grown up in an environment like that where it's not as much pride that's on display, but it's very religious, and there's these things that you do, and there's these things especially that you don't do, and you live in this place of fear. I'm not going to call any specific group because I I think there's really a variety of groups, but in a religious community, one of the things that we see as pastors at New Life, as people are are coming to New Life, one of the changes that they start to see in their worldview is it's not Christianity is so much bigger than just a here's what you do and here's what you don't do type of thing. It is really a mission that we're on to show people the love of Christ in our community, and it's liberating to not live in religious fear that you've been held in bondage from from the time you're little. That you've had this system that you grew up in and you're now realizing that the gospel isn't just a system, it's a relationship with Christ. One of the things I was kind of praying through this message, I was thinking, what does it look like to relive in religious fear? Here's something that I feel like God put on my heart. Uh, One of the things that I see as a a counselor and as a pastor of families who are fear-based and rule-driven 
And they kind of look like the Levite where they have this system and there's the priest over them and it's really been bondage in their life. One of the things that you see in the next generation of people that live in religious fear are children that grow up in the system. This is maybe an aha moment for you, if you're a, especially if you're a person who's raised their kids and not been happy with some of the results. One of the byproducts of a religious fearful system is the kids look at it in a postmodern culture and they go, check, check please, I don't want it. I saw what mom and dad were pushing, and I'm just not interested in that form of brand of religion. And so the Levite is living in religious fear. Check out verse 33. The plot thickens. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had what? Are we awake? He had what? Compassion. He had compassion. It doesn't sound like that big of a deal, but understanding the story behind the story, it's a very big deal. The Samaritans, we talked about this woman last week. She was a Samaritan at the well. She was, she was a nothing. Do you remember what I told you that, that Jews would walk around? They would take a two-day journey to walk around Samaria. They, they didn't want anything to do with these people. And at the very core of their disdain was racism. The Samaritans were, were half-breeds, and they were open about that. They were half-Jewish, they were half uh, from Samaria, and, the, and what happened, Israel, when it was in captivity, there were men and women who married their captors and who had children, and the Jewish people were just disdained by this. They couldn't stand this. It was said that if you ate the bread of a Samaritan, it was equal to eating the flesh of a swine. There was a common saying that the Samaritans were dirt on the sandals of the Jewish people. There was a prayer that was very commonly prayed in the synagogue during the period of time that this was taking place that asked God not to give forgiveness to the Samaritans. How bold is that? How bold is that? God, I'm actually, I'm not going to just kind of sheepishly ignore the fact that there are people in my life that I don't forgive. I am going to pray to God with boldness. God, please do not bring redemption. Do not bring forgiveness cast judgment on these people group. There was no love loss between these two groups. The Samaritan is not a Gentile, so he's still bound by the same religious law as the first two men. And so he gets it too. He's heard, love the Lord God with all your heart. He's heard, love your neighbor as yourself. But then in the world around him, he's a social pariah. He's an outcast, but he does something different. And Jesus brings this to light in two different stories. The Samaritan woman who's an outcast, who's been married five times, living with the sixth guy. And he he says, uh, you know, there's forgiveness for your sins for her. And now he's bringing someone else to light that everyone would have hated. The Samaritan is different than the men before him because the Bible says that when he saw this man that was, was, was naked and lying on the side of the road, he had compassion. And you can fill that in as the third thing. The Samaritan has compassion. Has compassion for this man that's within an inch of his life on the side of the road. And this is how he had compassion. Verse 33, but a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him. And it it fleshes out very practically. He bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn to take care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii. And he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. This is radical. This is absolutely radical. 
There was a very good reason that he had to be scared for his life. He doesn't know this guy's story. He doesn't know why he was robbed. He didn't know if the guy had it coming. He didn't know who his enemies were. But there was something in the New Testament that Jewish people followed called blood vengeance laws. And blood vengeance laws look like this. If you rob me or hurt me, then according to this law, remember it's eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, according to the blood vengeance law, if you did something like this to me, I could not only hurt you, but I could legally hurt everyone around you. If you wound me, I can not only take that back out on you, but I also I could take that back on who I perceive are your friends as family. And so the priest knows this, and, and the Levite knows this, and so they walk around this guy. They, we don't know his story. We know he's from a bad neighborhood. We know he's on a bad road. We don't know why he's within an inch of his life. It must be pretty bad. He's beaten. He's unconscious. He's naked. He has no status. Who did he get in a bad situation with? And this Samaritan, knowing the exact same thing with the blood vengeance laws, knowing that if he's associated with this man, and this man is rotten to the core, that this guy has his own life now in risk for helping him, and not only his own life, but his friends and his family's lives as well. And he chooses to help nonetheless. He checks him into the local motel. He doesn't hide from the risk. He puts him up at the Super 8. And he responds with compassion. He just assumes the risk and trusts God with the consequence. Verse 36, the story starts closing. So Jesus now brings it all back. I would imagine everyone in the circle is, you know, like sometimes people just pay attention. I know that as a pastor. I'm definitely not Jesus. Don't hear me wrong. Sometimes people just by virtue of the conversation pay attention. Like every time we talk about infidelity, everyone stares at me. There's just certain conversation where you're not on your phones and you're not sawing, off, sawing off logs and your head's not tipping back. And this is one of those conversations for Jesus because when you start talking about people that other people hate, everyone wants to know what you're going to say. And so he says the Samaritan, verse 36, I'll just read it. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Last verse, he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and you do likewise. I was praying with an elder this morning before the service, and he brought something to light that I never thought of. He said, this guy was so religious that when Jesus calls him out in front of the group, he doesn't even have the courage to call this man who he is. He doesn't even have the, the, uh, you know, the, the fortitude to say the Samaritan. He just says the one. He, he can't stand Samaritans. The one who showed him mercy. Jesus says, go and do likewise. But he breaks it down, and I put this in your notes. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This has not changed in 2,000 years. The recipe is very simple. The application can be incredibly difficult. In fact, the application can only be done through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. As we, we start out this calendar year in ministry, there are two things that you need to get in check if you call yourself a follower of Christ, and they are very simple. By virtue of understanding. The first one is loving God. The second one is loving people. What does it mean to love God? It should be most simplistically understood through the lens of your marriage. And if you're single, potentially, at least for 90% of you, your future marriage. How do you actually live out this understanding of loving God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul? And that's quite the command, right? And, the, and what did I tell you at the beginning? What's the key 
verbiage? What's a key word in that that ties it all together? What's the repetitive statement? It is what? All. All your heart. And the entire Bible shows us this metaphor of loving God through the lens of the marriage. That Jesus is the groom, that we are the bride, that this is the covenant, and this is the way. I've told you this a while back this summer. This is the way to understand the gospel, that we are to love God with all, and we do that knowing that some is the enemy of all. It's this impossible task that can only be done through the Holy Spirit working in our lives. But if you don't have that mindset, even though all of you are going to fall short of it, I'm going to fall short of all. I fall short of our all every day. Every day I fall short of the all, but I, in the pursuit of the all is my affection for Christ. Because some is the enemy of all. And so the first thing that we do is we love God with all of our heart. In romantic terms, we've talked about this before, and I, th- I think it's a sticking point, so we'll use this analogy again. In romantic terms, we understand this, don't we? That, that some is the enemy of all, that if we somehow, uh, you know, Christ loves us with all, that he, greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends, that if, if somehow we understood love through the lens of some, that it would be the most unromantic, disgusting, and nauseating form of love that ever existed, that if somehow we walked down the aisle and I, I said to Ann, I, Rodney, take you, Ann, to be my wife, to having to hold for most days forward, for better and for most bad days, in sickness and in some predetermined health condition, for richer and for some degrees of poverty, to love and cherish uh, through half of our lives together. And with this ring, I pledge you my love. She'd throw it back to me and punch me in the face, right? That's what happens when you marry an Italian. And so we love God with all of our heart because some is the enemy of all. If you love with some who you really love, look at me when I tell you this. If you love with some, the person you really love is yourself. Conditional love is self-love. And so we love with all, but the second thing is this. And and who's really going to disagree with that? That's common sense, but but where the rubber meets the road for our church this fall moving forward, and I'm going to have a practical challenge for you in just a minute, and we're going to close. Where it gets very difficult is we have to concede that as much as we don't like it, we look an awful lot like the priest and the Levite, and not as much like God has called us to, to be like the Samaritan in this story. Because the last command, the big command, is love your neighbor as yourself, and, and I love this story because it actually shows us what that looks like. There's a, there's a road map for this process, if you like process. What, it, what does the Samaritan do? Well, number one, it takes a social risk. He takes a social risk. He switches lanes. That's what most of us non-risk takers do, especially in our cultural climate. I, I don't know. I know there's someone from Vegas, so let's just all tell them how it works here and see how long they last. I, I don't know if you know this if you're from Vegas or from California in the back, and you notice Californians sit in the back because they're like, just still skeptical of even being here, but sorry, that was a weak joke. But, but isn't it true that we don't take a lot of risks? We're not, we're not a real risk-taking crowd, and so this person switches lanes. He doesn't sidestep the process. He loves his neighbor by switching lanes and engaging in this person who is distraught. Number two, he shows compassion. He dresses the wounds. He pours on oil. He pours on wine. And then the big thing is he takes action. This is the step that none of us actually do on any real level. 
This would have been a massive inconvenience in his life to take this next step of action. I mean, it's one thing for maybe 10, 15 minutes to, to bandage some stuff up. But he walks through this process of putting him on his donkey or whatever it was and then taking him to a, a motel or a hotel. And the coolest part of the story in the action step, the coolest part of the story is that he says to this person, here's, you know, who's, here's two denarii. And if it costs more than this, this is what's so radical about the text. If it costs more than this, then when I'm back on my 17-mile journey in the opposite direction, I will pay you anything that I still owe you because I'm going to see this process through in this man's life. Taking actions means that we invest in people to the point where it hurts. And by that matrix, how many of us have passed the test? I'm going to say something as we start closing, and I, I don't want it to be taken the wrong way because I love what we do around here. But, but I think it's worthy of an illustration. There are things that we do, and in fact, I think it's some of the same reason that some of you love new life. There are things that we do that are awesome, but they run the risk of checking a box instead of looking like the Samaritan. I'll just bring up an example, and trust me, it's been going on a long time, and in no way do I want it to stop because it, it is great. Uh, a few weeks ago, I'll talk about how cool this is. Uh, you guys were challenged with filling up backpacks and school supplies for people that can't afford them in the community. And literally, I, I came to the church. I didn't know how many backpacks there were this year, but it looked to me like a few hundred. There were so many. <clears throat> How many of you went to Walmart or Target or something like that? You started filling these backpacks up, and then you realize it's been a while since your kids were in school, and it cost you more than you thought it would cost. And then that's where I was like, I got gotcha, you, right? I didn't, you, know, you didn't know that, but you sacrificed. I love that ministry, but, but hear this from, I hope, a right heart. We can do things like that, look at me, and still not be the person in this story. Because the person in this story did something that has to be done for the gospel to go forward. The person in this story didn't just do a do-good thing. The person in this story loved a person personally and built that relationship to the point of taking him to a hotel and then coming back to see him again. If we're going to love our neighbor, we don't just do a good deed. We love the actual person and build the relationship. And that is... in. So much more difficult, isn't it? I need some feedback, you guys. Wake up. Isn't that just way more difficult, which is why it rarely happens? Amen? It, it, is, it is a great thing to give someone something that they need, but it is a whole nother thing. Now you're starting to look like Jesus when you actually don't just bandage the wounds and take off, but you bandage the wounds, you put them in your car, you take them to the hotel, you come back to see how they're doing. Now all of a sudden it's real. Now all of a sudden it's this woman at the well scenario. So many times in the New Testament, Jesus has these intimate interactions with people that are broken. But classically, it's women that are broken that have no form of, you know, any type of 
social standing in the world around them where most of them are illiterate, they don't have the right to vote, they are abused by men, and Jesus shows compassion on them. He loves them where they're at. He walks them through a process, and just like his own discipleship team, he's there, he's engaged, he's not just providing a service. They all wanted food, they all wanted wine. He says, I'm giving you myself, my body, my blood. I have a bigger mission here. It's to have a personal relationship with you through through my death and resurrection, that you can be made right before God the Father. And so what I want to bring to light as we start off this ministry cycle together is if we're doing things and not investing in people on a personal level, we're never going to do what God's called us to do, which is make disciples. There has to be, there has to be another step. There is one person that is the good Samaritan in this story. And shocker, it's Jesus. Jesus is the good Samaritan in this narrative. He's the perfect Savior who puts his own life on the line to save you. You did nothing to deserve him to stop the the bleeding and to stop the heal the spiritual wounds. But in the midst of that, he put his own life on the line. He gave his own life so that we can have life. That's the gospel. We're dead in our sins. We're alive in Christ. He He is the narrative of the entire Bible. But the reason that this story is on my heart as we get started is, number one, it's a beautiful story of the gospel on display. But what's been driving my, my thoughts this week is I knew that, you know, between sermon series, we have this time to just challenge each other as Christians. What's been driving my thoughts is there has to be a better way to disciple. It has to get personal. And so here's what we have always done and we will continue to do. Put things in your path, and we have them. September 11th, you're going to see life groups that you can get involved in. September 14th, there's going to be a spot for your kids to hear the gospel, and there is a clear narrative of them. If they're in it the entire time through the course of their elementary school years, they're going to hear the entire narrative of Scripture twice. It's going to be in-depth. They're going to grow in their faith, and you can take your kids on Wednesday nights in a few weeks, and you can put them in youth group, and you can have youth pastors and youth leaders discipling them, and you can get into a large study on Wednesday nights, and you can eat a meal that's provided through Kingdom Builders, and we're going to build relationships, and all of that is awesome, but here's where it falls down. If it's just a system, and it's just looking in your own, you know, lack of maturity in your faith, to the church to provide the means for, this, for the way that you can grow, this is never going to happen. It has to transfer from the system to a personal reality where you actually love your neighbor and you don't just do something nice, you engage in their life. This is where the gospel explodes. It's through the concept of the Good Samaritan and loving God and loving people. So here's my challenge. Are you ready? Are you still with me? Five of you, are you still with me? Here's the challenge, okay? September 18th, we are going to have a massive bonfire. Chuck's like, we're having a bonfire? <laughs> he hates when I do that. I'm going to have a fire going at some place. We'll, uh, we'll get one of those pigs with an apple and we'll spin it at the farm. I don't know. But we're going to have some stuff going on. We're going to have a bonfire. September 18th. I think it'll start at like 6 o'clock. You'll get some heads up on the details in the weeks to come. 
But after that, Greg is going to practice all of these pretty songs that all of you actually know, and there's going to be hymns, and so no one can start a riot because we'll sing hymns too. And, and uh, we're going to get together, and then I'll have a little sermonette for you, and, and we're just going to spend this time as a family together. But my, my challenge is this, that that's the end of the celebration. Here's what I would ask of you, and I'm going to do it myself. What I'm asking you as your pastor, in the next three weeks leading up to this bonfire that's going to take place, Will you commit to having your own bonfire, even if you live in the city and it's just a little fire pit at your house, and if you don't have that and you rent or you you have an apartment, then find someone else and use their house. Will you commit to having a get-together with people that you feel called to reach out to, and would you actually take the gospel, put it on display, and look like the Good Samaritan in in this story and take an actual action step, not just to help people financially, but to invest in them emotionally and spiritually? What does it look like if you're in college and this is your first Sunday for you to hold a Bible study at your dorm? What, what does it look like if you're in high school for you to get involved in the, in the Bible studies at Central or ACS that are starting and hopefully soon on every uh, school in Aberdeen? That's our, our vision. What, what does it look like for you to take personal responsibility and to actively love your neighbor and show what it looks like to put Jesus on display? Because if it's about the church providing the means for you, you are going to be spiritually anemic the rest of your life. Had a meeting with a, with a lady in church this week that I've known for like 15 years in ministry. She's saying, I feel called to, to have something at my house where it's a craft time and we all come together, these women that I know, and we have a craft and we have a Bible study. Great, awesome, go do it. These ideas come to surface all the time. My challenge is very simple. In the next three weeks, have your own bonfire, have your own Bible study, have your own investment level where you're not looking to the church to provide the means, but you're actually being the person that God's called you to be. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. Give us an absolute burden to reach lost people. There are no shortage of naked people on the side of the road. Grow us in our faith. All year, Jesus, 2022 has been about dealing with the issues from our past and moving forward with the disciplines into our future. But God, as we continue on this trajectory, grow us in our faith. Help us to own it. Help us to let go of our religious pride and our religious fear. And help us to love you and to love people. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for the cross. We pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you, and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.